Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the sons were born to them after the flood. It's a post-flood world. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilia, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca, and the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod, who began to be a mighty one of the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erek, Akkad, Kalne, in the land of Shinir. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, and Rehoboth, Ir, Kela, and rest in between Nineveh and Kela, that is the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrasim, Kasluhim, from whom came the Philistines and the Kafratorim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, Archite, the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Afterwards, the families of Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites were from Sidon, as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza. Then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Amah, Sebuim, as far as Lasha, these were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And children were born to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Ashur, Ar, Faxad, Lud, and Amram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Aphrax begot Selah, and Selah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Amodad, Shelef, Harzameveth, Jera, Hedorem, Uzal, Digla, Obal, Abiniel, Sheba, Ophir, Havila, and Jobad. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was from Misha, as you go toward Sephar, the mountains of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, and from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Every people group that you could possibly study in the study of the history of humanity is going to come from these three sons and these descendants of these sons. So whether you're studying the Incas, Aztecs, or Mayans, or Eskimos, or ancient Chinese civilizations, or Asian civilizations, European civilizations, the early Russian civilizations from Russia and the East there, they all come from here. They all come from here. So every one of us here tonight, whether we have a, a very distinct ethnicity, of course now with all these different information they can do with your DNA, they can do your ancestry.com and determine various things. And 
But we're all one humanity. We're all one people. We're all descendants. We all come from Adam, for an Adam all sin and die. And Christ is the second Adam who came to alleviate that. And where sin abounded in Adam, grace abounds in the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that. But from the descendants of Adam, through Seth, came the genealogy by which Noah remained alive. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He had ministry sons, his wife, and his daughter-in-laws. And they went on the ark. They were preserved for a year. Came off the ark in what would be the true ice age, the biblical ice age, which science supports. And in that post-flood world, as I've been saying, welcome to the ice age, very different than the world they lived in before the flood. And these are the nations, these are the people. Every one of us not only comes through Adam, through Noah and the family, and through Shem, Ham, or Japheth, one of those three, but through a subdivision as well. For example, we see Magog early on on this list, and we know that we're told in Ezekiel about Gog and Magog coming in to invade Israel. A lot of Bible prophecy gives insights to these nations, these people, as the end game players. We understand in the apocalypse, if you will, the Armageddon event scenario that the Bible makes very clear will happen when the nations of the world come against Israel in the end of days and ultimately turn to be at war with God that they come from all these directions. And some of these terms are actually used to refer to those people groups, their original terms, and archeology span and other extra-biblical writings can help us clarify who these people are. And Gog and Magog is Russia, modern Russia, and that part of the caucus of the world, that's who they are. And so that's why back in 1967 in the Six-Day War and 1973 in the War of Yom Kippur, when the Russians were backing the Syrians and everybody else was coming, Pastor Chuck and Billy Graham and all these people, how Lindsay were so excited because they could look at what was going on in particularly the Yom Kippur War in 1973 and all the major players that are described for us in the Bible of the end game for the Valley of Armageddon, which precedes the reign of Christ on planet Earth. These... These players are known by these names in the Bible, but we have insight that helps us understand who they are now. And of course, if you go back to Desert Shield and then Desert Storm in 1991, again, it was amazing because if you watch the news when they used to have news like that, news that you would actually watch, and it was network news, and it was just news by and large, it showed all these players descending in that region when Saddam Hussein had invaded Uh, Kuwait and all that and we really believed that the Lord was coming back in 1991 because all the arrows on the map showed all these key players coming against Israel but it didn't come to pass just like the Cuban Missile Crisis was so close to the planet just going boom but the Lord holds times and seasons nations peoples generations in his hands but we all come from this table this list of people the first group there, the Japheth, primarily your European people, your European groups, Germanic tribes. Uh, again, this is also provable. There's lots of extra material you can read on this. If you just go online, you can find all kinds of stuff on the nations. The uh, descendants of Ham would be North Africa and the African people groups. And then the descendants of Japheth would be Middle East and Far East, considered historically. And thus, Japheth... Shem is through the, the line, that geneal- the genealogy that Jesus Christ comes through Mary, the Virgin Mary. Shem, Ham, Japheth, Shem, and we see that line, and that line goes forward tonight in chapter 11. The genealogy, the promised Messiah, going back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first promise of the, of the Messiah, Jesus Christ coming 
to be the second Adam to redeem us. And so it's progressive and it's preserved. It's amazing. And before we end this night, we'll see that God sets aside the one man, Abram, and his wife, Sarah, heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, that through them who was barren, a nation would come. And from that nation, God would preserve his word, his revelation with the nation of Israel, and the Messiah would come through them. It's amazing. Now, these first 11 chapters, including this chapter 10 that we just read, they encompass the first couple thousand years of human history. But the rest of Genesis, when we move on to chapter 12 in next week, is really about a 200-year period of history. So we're getting, well, this is a transition. We're kind of sealing the fruit tonight of the pre-flood, immediate post-flood Ice Age world that took place in the dawn of creation, setting the stage for Abram, the father of faith, and Sarah, and then the nation of Israel to come to them, the patriarchs as they're known. So as we see this list again, we can all fall into the camp of Japheth, Ham, or Shem. So verse 21 is Shem, Ham and his descendants are verse 6, and Japheth's the first one in, in verse 2. The first thing I want to draw your attention to in looking at this chapter is the phrase I, I emphasize and drew attention to, that in verse 5 it says, the Gentiles were separated into their lands. Gentiles is, of course, the biblical term for anyone other than the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Then we saw it again in verse 20. Again, according to their families, according to their language, and their lands and their nations. And again, verse 31, with Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, their lands, according to their nations. And the grand summary of verse 32 of the entire chapter is, to their generations, in their nations, and from these nations were divided on earth after the flood. So the context is so clear. We'll see in chapter 11, we know the story of Tower of Babel, that God gave them different languages because when they had one language, they unified to do evil, which will be the end game, and we'll get to that in just a moment in chapter 11. But God gave them different languages. And there's distinctions. You know, God does have separation and distinctions. We've talked about this going through Genesis so far. But God separated humanity because unified together, fallen men conspire against God. In the pre-flood world, fallen men, the thoughts and intents of their hearts were only evil, and they were unified in that evil and the self-destruction of the entire human race plus everything on the planet. It is only because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord that man didn't destroy himself. And we know in the end of the age, Jesus said that unless those days were shortened for the elect's sake, no one would make it through the great tribulation of God just basically giving men over to himself, humanity over to itself. God has separated the nations. God has drawn the distinctions, and we see in our generation right now every effort imaginable by the powers that be, the global bankers and the global politicians and their one-world agenda. We see every effort led by a demonic force behind them to bring this planet together as one people in the name of the unity of humanity. But we know from God's word that that's mystery Babylon in the end game. And man unified without faith in Jesus Christ and the catalyst of the Holy Spirit unifying them will only rebel against God and they'll, they'll erect their false religion based upon men and the glory of men, just as we'll see in chapter 11, in rebellion against God. And Antichrist will unify a false religion and control a world monetary system without cash, attack Israel at the very end of it all, and control the entire planet. 
the world is going to be unified. And before the Lord establishes his kingdom and comes with his church to rule and reign for the thousand-year reign of Christ, he will let all humanity see that when humanity is on the throne and can unify its languages and unify its culture, it will unify itself and max rebellion against the living God and his plans and purposes for all humanity from the dawn of creation. And he knows that. He's given us the distinctions. He's given us the cultures and the distinctions of cultures. It's funny, as much as I didn't like school growing up, I did enjoy social studies. That's what they used to call it. I don't know what they call it now. Social studies. And when I was a pro surfer traveling the world early on in my life, I was very fascinated by different cultures. I I took adventures. I did different things other people wouldn't do, like hitchhiking across South Africa in the early 80s. I went on adventures to meet the people and go through the trans guy and the cis guy. I traveled throughout Japan. I went, went to Bali. I remember going to the Hindu temple and just being creeped out by it. What a privilege I got to see traveling the world. When I came to Christ in 1987, that spring, March, April, reading through the Gospel of John by myself, my father's house after the attempted suicide, when I got saved through the text in John 19, it is finished. The Lord put on my heart. He put this on my heart. It was so clear. You went around the world for yourself. And now I'm asking you to give yourself for the world. He gave me the Great Commission. There was a fisherman I stayed with in Japan in the Chiba Prefecture while on the pro tour. It was like a bed and breakfast. And he had a shrine in the backyard. And every morning he'd go out in the backyard and light incense at that shrine. And again, I had a Catholic background, so I had a reasonably biblical worldview, just didn't really know the Lord personally. And I would think, like, well, what, what about that? You know, like, what does God think about that? Like, is that, because I'm picturing base chapels with, you know, the, the Via Della Rosa and the, the paintings and all, right? You know, if you, you know, grew up in a Catholic church, you know, it's like it was all there, the Via Della Rosa, the 12 steps of the cross and all that stuff. And, you know, good news for modern man, stick man Bible. Remember that in the 70s? That's the Bible I had growing up, going to catechism and going to church. So I'm there, I'm looking at, what does God think of that? When I was in Africa and I was in the regions where the tribal religions were in, were in play and you could recognize that, or when I was at the Hindu temple again in Bali the first time in 81, like, and the, the weird, you know, when I went to Australia in 79, my first night in Australia in 1979 was at D.Y. Point right off the plane, and the room I stayed in had a giant poster of uh, Hindu gods over me. And they burned incense in the house all day long. And I was like, what does God think of this? I almost died in a fire in that house, actually. I woke up with a house on fire, surrounded by flames. That's one of the times God delivered my life from something very strange. But the Hindu poster and these guys, these are cool. All these, right, my yeah, my yeah, right, you know. They all smoked weed. They all smoked cigarettes. They all, they all partied. They surfed. They, you know, they all lived on the dole. I didn't know what the dole was. The dole is, um, you know, unemployment money, right? That's what it was. I didn't know anything, but first night in Australia, I got a Hindu god looking down on me in the room I'm sleeping in, creeping me out. A lot of different cultures. Many of you have traveled the world. I've really enjoyed traveling the world as a believer and hanging out with Chileans, Argentinians, Uruguayans. I've had some great experiences with Jesus traveling the world as well. Japan, too. It's a big world out there, WG, and some of you know that more than others. It's a big world out there. And God gave the distinctions of nations. 
He has divided us in our different nations with our different cultures. You remove the various religions because God's put eternity in our hearts. So man's going to worship somebody or something. Thus, all parts of the world have world religions of some sort. But those cultural distinctions, God's given those distinctions. God's given the nations. God has given the nations and the distinctions of nations and cultures and ethnicities. That's by his design. And we can appreciate that, and we can value that. And this is the beauty of the Great Commission, because when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, he said to the apostles, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age, teaching them all things I've commanded you to observe. And so those apostles went out with their lives, pushing toward India and the east and the north, toward Europe, and the, you know, the European tribes and all that stuff. And then the subsequent generations, that, that as they went out, and there might have been kings conquering with a cross, misrepresenting Jesus, but there was people nearby them who were preaching the gospel into those places they went. And wherever man has abused authority in the name of religion, you can find women and men who lay down their lives for Jesus' name for the advancement of the gospel, whether it's here in America with Native Indians or in South America with Native Indians or Central America. For every Spanish conquistador that killed somebody, there was somebody there that brought Jesus Christ to them that served those people at the same time. That's the legacy of the church. See, Jesus Christ said very clearly that we are to go to all nations and we are the servant of all to those nations. When I gave Pastor Alex a book about mission history, I got the same book and read it myself. And it's a pretty almanac sort of book, but I found it very, a bit, though it was a bit dry at times, it was fascinating to read about these wonderful women and men for 2,000 years who have faithfully gone out to reach the nations in Jesus' name. And yeah, we had to learn languages. We have to learn language. We do cross-cultural training. Um, We had friends go to Pennsylvania for a year to do cross-cultural training to reach uh, what they call Stone Age tribes in New Guinea. They went to Pennsylvania and did all this type of training and to learn the languages, the, the local dialects that are only unique to those dialects with no vowels and, you know, limited grunts of consonants in the, in the, Whatnot. And knowing how hard it was for me to even try and learn Spanish, I can't even imagine learning like a uh, dak, dak, you know, type of thing. Like, how would you know that? God had to divide the nations to preserve humanity, to protect humanity. And he has given to the church of Jesus Christ the opportunity to go out and win the nations in their distinctions and the beauty of their cultures to Jesus Christ. And this is the beauty of Jesus Christ. He transcends every culture. So the church is extremely strong in South Korea right now. The church is extremely strong in China. And it's extremely strong in Vietnam. And it's amazing how, like, Jesus, well, Paul said, to become all things all men, that I might win them to Christ. And once we get past our ethnicity or our culture or our customs and our traditions and we realize that Jesus in the gospel is transcultural because he's the king of kings and lord of lords and all nations worship him in heaven, it's amazing to think like how he reaches everybody, the aborigine, the Pakistani, the Afghani, you know, any tribe, tongue, and nation. He's got it. They're there. And that's why I'm always excited about missions and advancing the kingdom and supporting people who will go out and take a risk with Jesus for Jesus. So whether it's John McCartney reaching surfers in Ireland in a country rift with war and terrorism for centuries with misrepresentations of Jesus, but he's using a surfboard to win people to Christ, good for you, John McCartney. 
or Megan Petronas and her ministry in York, England, or David Downs and his ministry in Italy, or the Havlars and what they've done for 10 years in Europe and North Africa. I just, I love it. What Brian Broderson's doing through Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa and his heart for missions, like, that's who we are. The history of the church is people like you and I stepping out in faith on ships or planes and leaving everything we know and going somewhere to people we don't know anything about them and trying to figure it out and trying to be sensitive to how Christ comes into that culture. That's what Paul did in the book of Acts. Oh, I see that you are worship, that you're religious people, and I've seen this here and that there, and I'm here to declare to you the truth about who these people were speaking of. It's a tricky thing not to offend people's culture when you bring the gospel to them, but just make sure if people are ever offended because of us, whether they're in this nation or other nations, our ethnicity or different ethnicities, that it's the, it's the cross offending them, not you. Because I offended a lot of people in my own flesh. And I've kind of determined down the stretch that if people hate me, I want them to hate me for the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there's a blessing in that. If they hate me just because I'm rude, then that's just, I'm just a donkey. You know, There's no blessing in that. But God formed these nations, and there's distinction in these nations, and there's opportunity to this day for us to reach the nations. And that's why we say we value all life, and all life matters. No matter what country, no matter how developed or third world or whatever we might think, every life matters. And one of the greatest places you can arrive at in your life is when you look at anybody, anywhere, anytime, under any circumstance, and see the reflection of God in that life and the opportunity of the gospel for that life to be everything it's meant to be when, it, when that life has had the chance to be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. God's on the throne. And there's distinctions. So instead of looking at what, what separates us and creating barriers in our hearts toward people, the gospel really looks at the, the hope that Christ can become to win people to Christ and how we serve them. And sometimes when you serve people, they appreciate it. Most of the time, they don't. So if you're going to win people to Christ by serving them because you get appreciated, don't hold your breath. Thank yous are pretty rare in the human experience, which brings us to Nimrod. We read of Nimrod. It says in verse 8, so the distinctions are from the Lord. But Nimrod in verse 8 is a mighty man of the earth, Man, let's be mighty women of heaven, mighty men of heaven on earth. But mighty men of the earth, this guy, his kingdom, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Well, there we go. He's the ringleader for the Tower of Babel. This guy is the original Antichrist. Let's form a government devoid of any remnant or consciousness of God. Forget that old geezer Noah. Forget his the great-great-great-grandparents. Now listen, Noah died three years before Abram was born. So when all this stuff was happening, Noah was alive. He lived 300-plus years after the flood. The best accounts of the Ice Age are a couple hundred years. So he came off that ark and lived hundreds of years, and he might have been around to see the Tower of Babel. It seemed like he was. But you only get older, you just think, well, what are you going to do, right? The older, when you become grandparents, you just go like, what are you going to do? With adult kids, what are you going to do? You're going to pray and hope for the best. You're going to love, you're going to serve. And, but if you kept on going, think how far you would go. Now, he outlived a number of his descendants as well. Noah did. Because he had that superhuman body from the pre-flood world. And after that, everyone 
lifespans were cut down like from 900 to 400 to 200, just like that in a, in a couple of centuries. But Noah lived a long time. So here you have Noah, this mighty man of faith, and his wife building of the ark. By, Noah, faith, by faith, Noah built the ark for the saving of his family and his household. Hebrews 11. Save the human race. He just, that old geezer, this is Nimrod's world. Just like it was with Cain and Abel, right? Cain built that world, that pre-flood world. And Nimrod's going to build a world devoid of God. That men and women strive and seek to attain power and have massive power to control souls of people and wealth and nations is not surprising. What is surprising is when men and women seek to serve the living God. That's what's so unique. And remember, Jesus said, wide and broad is a path that leads to destruction, and many go thereby, but narrow is a gate that leads to life, and few enter thereby. To find a woman who can handle power, to find a man who can handle power, truly handle power of souls is a rare thing indeed. Even the apostles fought among themselves who would be greatest. They were so driven by power to control and have authority and be important that they were arguing, even as Jesus is as torment of soul headed toward Jerusalem, they're arguing over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. They're sending mom to Jesus to say, can you have James on this side and John on that side? They pictured Jesus with a throne in Jerusalem, and John and James pictured themselves there. And it created great division amongst the other apostles when that happened. Of course, Peter, just a few nights later, would say, hey, these guys, if they bail on you, I'll never bail on you. I'm your guy, right? We studied that in Mark. I'm your guy. These guys, hey, I'll never deny you. We got a rooster behind our house. I don't know how that's legal. (laughs) I live in Huntington Beach by the beach. I just think a rooster is probably illegal. But when that rooster crows, I always go like, you know, like as a pastor, I hear a rooster crow. I think of, Jesus, of Peter denying Jesus. But what did Jesus say when that happened, all that division took place? He said, the kings of the earth lord over one another, but not so with you. For the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. Because the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. We can never go wrong when we humble ourselves and we serve others in Jesus' name. You can never go wrong forgiving. You can actually go very right. And if you don't forgive, you do go very wrong. You can never go wrong for humbling ourselves and just committing ourselves to the Lord. It is rare to find a woman or man who can handle extreme, large-scale power over souls or finances or peoples. In that sense, it's very rare. We move toward control and authoritarian, totalitarian governments. I think one of the most amazing things about Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary Costa Mesa is how faithful and diligent he was and how humble he was for how much kingdom wealth he actually was in charge of. The souls of thousands of churches, the resources of millions of dollars, and he wisely invested in Bible colleges and things like that and missions and these things. It's it's amazing because we think of Pastor Chuck being this great teacher and all these things verse by verse, but what's amazing to me is what God entrusted him with. Few men can be entrusted. If you came through the 80s, you know how many men had a lot of stuff and wrecked it in Jesus' name and wrecked their reputations, their marriages, and they've come and gone and their distant memories. I have a lot of respect for people that can control millions and millions of dollars in Jesus' name and live in a 1,500-square-foot home 
for decades and drive a used Cadillac, Pastor Chuck. He always bought used Cadillacs. <laughs> hey, got, you like a Cadillac? You still buy a used Cadillac. We're not to be mighty women and mighty men of the earth. We're to be mighty women and mighty men of the kingdom. And the humility, that humility of Christ goes so far for the witness of Jesus Christ. And the world's full of takers. Very rare and few are the givers. And if we fully give ourselves to the Lord, we might be entrusted with a lot of things. And God can do great things. But so rare are those people. But if we're faithful in the little things, he might trust us with more things. But if we can't be faithful with the little things, he certainly will not trust us with greater things. Now we go on in chapter 11. We have no interest in being like Nimrod, Heat. Anyone who builds Babel and Nineveh, <laughs> they're, they're, that's a different kingdom. Now the whole earth was one language and one speech, and it came to pass... As they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, that they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And again, the distinction of nations and why. And again, I think of all these people like Wycliffe Bible translators and all the people who went to foreign countries um, like a Hudson Taylor to, and they learned the language and how arduous it would be to learn Mandarin if you're coming from England and your language is English. Maybe one thing, if you have a Latin-based language like Spanish and you're trying to learn French or Portuguese, a little different, a lot of commonality in the languages, but to go to England, come from England, and then learn Chinese with thousands and thousands of figurines and what they represent, and it's amazing. And we think all Chinese or Japanese or Korean looks the same with the figurines. It's like we've seen it once, it all looks the same to us. We can't draw the distinction because you have the same figurines, but they mean something different in Korean, Chinese, or Japanese. I learned that from Luke because my son Luke, of course, is proficient in Mandarin. He reads and speaks Mandarin quite well. He's legally proficient in it. And I say he's fluent, but he doesn't like me saying that. But he understands those distinctions. But what do we think about this is that even when you make those figurines, just like I have a handwriting style that's not that good, uh, my penmanship, you have a handwriting style that might be really good or not as good as well. We might write the same word. Let's just say uh, Calvary Chapel. We write the word Calvary Chapel. And if everyone in this room wrote Calvary Chapel, those two words together, and we submitted that piece of paper, it would all look so different, right, because of our handwriting. Well, it's like that with Chinese and Japanese and Korean figurines as well. We think all look the same, but you, you think 500 million people living in Guangzhou all write the figurine the same way with the same accent? They're as different as we are with writing English. And yet God, God gave those distinctions to protect us from ourselves. And yes, it's been an arduous process to translate the Bible and the New Testament into different languages, like Elizabeth Elliot translating the New Testament into Akka, only to have that manuscript stolen from her backpack in Quito. 
a year's worth of work stolen. Talk about a bad day. But God gave those boundaries. But I tell you, in the end game, I don't think the language barriers will be an issue. So this distinction of languages that God has to protect us from being one, it's going to be broken down with most likely artificial intelligence and microchip technology that can be used favorably with the human brain. Hey, if I had a chip and didn't think it was Antichrist and I could go to Chile and speak perfect Spanish in Argentina, I'd get the chip. I'd love to go to Russia and be like, speak in Russian. How cool would that be? Get off the plane in Moscow and be like, oh, comrade, and just break into Russian. Be awesome. How fun would it be to go like, like speak Vietnamese? Like all the, all the barbers I go to, they, they all speak Vietnamese. I'd love to just break out in Vietnamese be like, but then that's just me being Nimrod building my Tower of Babel. Look at me. This is what I'm going to do. I can speak Vietnamese. Round of applause for the pastor. That's bilingual, right? But these languages are distinct and different because God made it so. And some languages are funny, like Hungarian has nothing in common with any other language. Calvary Chapel is very powerful and strong in its witness in the country of Hungary. It's just the way it worked out. They all want to learn. All these Calvary people go there want to learn Hungary, Hungarian. No one in Hungary wants you speaking Hungarian. They want to learn English because that's, that's their way to a better source of income in their livelihood, which is the way it is for most of Europe. You've got to learn. You've got to speak English in Europe. You understand that? You have to speak English in Europe. Like, that's, that's the money world. You know, even Merkel speaks English, right? They are, you're a banker. You're, you, English is important. Most Europeans speak multiple dialects. It's funny. Like, I'm like, how does Hungarian become a dead-end language? Like, you speak Hungarian, it doesn't work with anything else. You speak Spanish, I'd rather learn Spanish. I go to France, I'm like, I can go grocery shopping. Because it all looks similar. I mean, it's different, you know, and it's not exactly like shopping for food in Vigne de Mar, but I can read. I can read street signs. Like, if you, I, I, I could go to Brazil and Portugal, and I'd be, able to, I'd be able to understand so much more just because I'm somewhat proficient in Spanish. But God gave all these distinctions, and he gave them to keep us from becoming one at war and rebellion against him. So here's the beauty of the body of Christ in these distinctions, is that the church of Jesus Christ is in almost every nation you can think of on this planet, if not all. And whether they're meeting publicly like us tonight on September 3rd, or privately in China, or some other part of the world in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, different places. We're the church, and we are worshiping Jesus here tonight in English, but people all over this planet are worshiping Jesus in thousands of other dialects this night. Because it's Jesus Christ that brings us together under the right kingdom, the kingdom of God, where he's the king. He's the king. That's why the Antichrist is called the Antichrist, because he's the Antichrist. But Christ the Messiah is the king, the king of kings. And so we're all kind of separated for our own best interest in a way right now, the, the nations, but the body of Christ is unified because once we come under the blood of Jesus Christ and we're born of the Spirit, we're under the right kingdom. And we're governed by the king and we're not building the Tower of Babel and rebellion to God, we're bowing the knee and worship to God. And that's the great distinction between us tonight, the Church of Jesus Christ, and the nations gathered at the U.N., Oh, I'm all for global government where Jesus Christ is king over all the nations. I see global government in, in Revelation chapter 5. It looks pretty good when the planet's worshiping the king. Every tongue, tribe, and nation. Global government, the Antichrist, has revealed to us in the Bible, it looks really bad. And I agree with Pastor Chuck saying, I'm not looking for the Antichrist, I'm looking for the Christ. 
That's who I'm looking for, that he's coming for us before that goes down. The Tower of Babel, it's, it's there. God did this to protect us. And how many things does he do to separate us from certain things to protect us as well from ourselves? Last but not least, we end the night with some more genealogy. This genealogy is important because it brings us to Jesus Christ. It brings us to Abraham, which would bring us to Jesus Christ. So we'll end the night reading this text. Verse 10, chapter 11, Shem's descendants. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old, and we got Aphrexod, two years after the flood. After we got Aphrexod, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Aphrexod lived 35 years and begot Selah. And after we got Selah, Aphrexod lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. So you see the timeline of years is dropping way off, way off, the coming down. Selah lived 30, verse 14. Selah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Selah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. And after he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. So that's 404 years for him. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. After he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Sarug. And after he begot Sarug, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sarug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. And after he begot Nahor, Sarug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. So 230 years is what we get for Sarug. So you can see the declining lifespan in the post-flood world. Verse 24, Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he got Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So this is how we get to Abram or Abraham, the father of faith, the father of the Jews. And of course, most of you know the monotheistic religions of the world, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all claim Abraham as the father of their faith. So you could put forth a very strong argument apart from Jesus Christ himself as the son of God, Abram, you might say, is the most influential man in human history because these world religions so far reaching all, they don't agree on how he's our father of faith, obviously between Islam and the Jews and Christianity, but nonetheless, objectively, Abram is an amazing person and we're going to be studying him for weeks to come and this is how we, we get to him. He was born three years after Noah died to get his timeline. He missed Noah by three years on the timeline. God is now, he's, he's distinguished the people with their nations in their different places. But it's through this person, Abram, who is going to be a special nation, or as God says in his law of the Old Testament, a chosen people, the Jews. Of all these nations, there's one that's going to be set aside by which he's going to work in a very special way. We pick it up in verse 27. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. So one of the three sons died in Ur of the Chaldeans, modern uh, Iraq. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. That would be the other two sons. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. That, of course, is Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah the daughters of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah, but Sarah was barren, she had no children. So it's important to realize that Milcah is through whom Rebekah and Rachel come into the picture later on from the other side. There's the three sons, the one son died, 
and Lot's his son, that's Abram's nephew. But this side, the other son, come the women, Rebekah and Rachel, who will come into the picture later on as we go forward in Genesis. Verse 20, excuse me, verse 31. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, we'll get more into this next week as we go forward with Abram. But when God called Abram, he said, get out of your country and from your family. And he took his dad with him. His dad never made it to the promised land, Terah. And we're also told in the book of Joshua that his dad worshipped false gods in his life. And as much as, I would just say this in closing thought, as much as we want to bring everybody with us, and as much as we want to honor everybody, sometimes obeying the Lord means we might need to go alone. There's a lot of great Bible studies about what happened when Abram took Terah's dad and he stalled, he didn't make it to the promised land until his dad died and they got back on track with what's going on. And there's such a delicate balance of honor your father and your mother, and yet Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead, right? When the man said the excuse, oh, first I got to take care of my dad. It's a, it's a tricky thing sometimes. But know this, Abram was called, and in that timeline, it was very profound for you to leave your community of people and step out like that. He got halfway to where he was going with his dad and his family and his nephew, and until his dad died, the whole thing was stalled. But once his dad died, he's back on track. So this concludes this part of the book of Genesis, and as we come back to it next week, we'll begin a whole new part of this book with the life of Abraham, the father of faith, and how impactful these stories are historically and contextually for application for the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, each of our lives in this room tonight and as we gather next week as people of faith in Jesus Christ.